We welcome you back to the bookcase. I'm Charlie Gibson. I'm Kate Gibson. We're the father and daughter duo, two generations, two perspectives on books. And today we have one to recommend that I think is really a must for your summer reading. One of our independent bookstore sellers called it the book of the summer. The name of the book is Trust, Just Simple Trust. And the author is Hernan Diaz, H-E-R-N-A-N, Diaz, D-I-A-Z. The book has been out for a couple of months. It has received stellar responses from book reviewers, and it certainly did from the two of us. It's a really interesting book. Well, essentially, the book is about a financier and his wife, but in some ways, the story is told in four different perspectives, four different self-contained narratives. And this financier and the backdrop of this novel very much has to do with money and people's relationship with money. And I think in some ways, the complex and individual relationships with money is a very American concept, don't you think? Yes. And he writes about that and talks about that in this conversation because he is an immigrant to the United States. He was born in Argentina, raised in Sweden uh, when his parents got in some political trouble there. They went back to Argentina eventually. He came to the United States, and he has lived most of his life here. But he does say that he is struck by a sort of singular, idiosyncratic, I guess. that Maybe that's not a fair no, word. No, I think that is a fair um, word. A relationship to money. And this novel basically takes place in the turn of the century, uh, in the 1900s. And, you know, we have said that each book we recommend won't be for everybody. But we want you just to take a moment and think, well, maybe I'm interested in that one. This is one that I hope you will do that. And I also think this is a great book, underlying great book for book clubs, Hmm. because I think it will excite really interesting conversations. You have to be patient with this book because at the beginning, and I think it's it's a bit of a risk that he takes at the beginning. You're not exactly sure what you're reading. No, he doesn't lay out the plot in the first five pages. He trusts the reader to go on this ride with him. And frankly, the writing is so good that I'll bet you will. He really illuminated people's relationships with money in ways that I had never thought of. I think the turn of the century was a time where this country realized, certainly through the Great Crash, how reliant this country's mentality, health, is based on money. Worldwide, I think we deify millionaires and billionaires. You know, yacht vacations become paparazzi photos of the very, very rich. This is something that Hernan talks about wonderfully in the interview. And yet, uh, as Americans, we consider money to be a somewhat taboo subject. And I think depending on whether or not you've had it, whether or not you've had it and lost it, and there's some trauma involved there, everybody has a history with money. Everybody brings their own emotional baggage to money. And that's really explored, I think, in new and unique ways in this book. I would take exception. I'm not sure that it is so much about money. Yes, it is about money. Money is the backdrop. But this is a great story. Yes. It's a great story of an individual looked at from different perspectives in these four parts. You don't have to buy four volumes. He, He talks about it as four books. It's not. It's four different parts to this book, as you will see just by looking at the table of contents. But I think it's just a great story and a great profile of somebody. And I came away with very strong feelings about the authors of each of the four different parts of the book, mm. as he writes from four different 
perspectives. Mm. So while I'll accept your point that there's a lot of background about money, I think it's just a great read. You know, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it because in some ways the novel is a puzzle and you get a big piece of the puzzle with the first part and you get a second piece of the puzzle with the second part. And by the end of the novel, you are looking at a more complete picture that still, I think, requires some reader interpretation. And I think that that's a brilliant way to build the book. I loved it. And which is the reason that I think it would be so attractive to book clubs. So if you have a book club and you haven't made next month's selection, uh, we would strongly recommend uh, this to your book club. And we would recommend it to you just as an individual reader. I think you'll find him very interesting, interesting background, interesting way of writing. And as Kate says, a book that is a puzzle all the way through, which is why I think it would excite such great conversation in your book club. But I was in love with our conversation with Hernan Diaz as well. So here it is. Hernan Diaz, the book is Trust. Hernandez, so good to have you in the bookcase. Your book, Trust, is intricately plotted. Four separate sections, which you tell us right in the table of contents page. A novel, a manuscript, a memoir, a diary, all written by different people. But what's interesting to me is you're not sure what you're reading in the first part. Then the second part tells you more about the first part. The third part tells you more about the first and second part. The fourth part tells you a lot about all three. Did you have that construct planned when you started? Well, thank you, Charles, for having me. And Kate, it's, it's an enormous pleasure. And thank you for the interesting question. Yes and no. I knew that I was going to write about wealth in America. And what I discovered very quickly is that this is a very ossified type of narrative, the one spun around wealth. And it's always very monolithic. There's one voice, usually that of a great self-made man, right? And that, of course, seemed a little fishy to me. So my intention was in part to debunk this idea of the almighty, you know, man who by sheer force of his ingenuity, pulls himself up his bootstraps and makes this great fortune. I wanted to look at the voices that had been maybe excluded from this narrative. And since we're talking about voice, that is in part the explanation of why there are four sections, four documents, four parts to the novel. I wanted to explore four different voices and in the process ask who is given a voice, who has even sort of a megaphone to expand their voice, and who is denied a voice, who has been gagged in these histories about wealth. So I think part of the journey, hopefully, that the reader makes throughout the book has not only to do with discovering, as you said, Charles, the different truths that each part reveals, but also what is implied in each one of these voices. And this is why I needed four parts. And this is why that general structure was clear to me from very early on in the process. Did you write them sequentially? I did not. No, I wrote the first part, just in case someone listening hasn't read the book. The first part is a whole novel within the novel, entirely self-contained, uh, written by a fictional author whose name is Harold Vanner. And that is the first book I wrote because I was teaching myself what the arc of the story was going to be. Although in the novel, the, the story is greatly distorted and this Harold Vanner chap 
uh, takes a lot of liberties with with facts. You know, he's very lax in that regard. But in my mind, I knew sort of what the main plot line was going to be. Then I wrote the third book, which is the memoir written by um, the secretary of a real life, in quotes, tycoon within the world of the novel. Then I wrote the second book, which is, I hope this is not too confusing, which is the autobiography written by that tycoon of whom this woman in the third part is the secretary. And then fourth and last, the memoir of the tycoon's wife, which was the hardest part to write. It's very short, but it's very intimate. And I don't know, I feel very exposed in that part of the book. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you, because a lot of writers, Edith Wharton, for instance, uh, which is interesting because a lot of people are calling this novel Wharton-esque. Edith Wharton talked about the importance of trying to encapsulate the entire book in the first chapter. But you, this book, I didn't get a complete picture of the story until the third installment. I mean, were you ever nervous when you were writing it that the reader wouldn't stick with you if you didn't honor that obsession with getting everything in the first chapter? I am never nervous when it comes to formulas like that. I don't feel that writing or the writing that I'm interested in is dogmatic in any sense. I think the rules for each book are written with and for that book. I don't believe in pre-existing commandments for writing. I was not nervous. I was hoping that the reader would be sufficiently intrigued every step of the way. I think the as I said a moment ago, I think the first book is totally self-contained as a narrative. I actually, you know, I don't think I've said this before publicly. I was toying with the notion of publishing it first as a totally standalone piece and have it out there with the novel Harold Vanner, not even with my name on it. Mm. And I don't know, we didn't do it in the end. It seemed too weird. <laughs> but that's the extent to which that book works on its own. The book that follows it is more demanding. It's also very short. It's more demanding because it is very much about finance capital. It's about money. It's this voice that is masculine and self-aggrandizing. It's a blowhard, you know, and it was written during the Trump years. So I had a very clear model <laughs> out in reality <laughs> that, that, that voice on. But it's also very fragmentary and it's, again, short. That's also why I feel the table of contents is important because you know that you get through that. And the reader realizes, hopefully very quickly, that these two books, this obnoxious man, toxic man, and the novel are pitted against one another. And it becomes clear that the novel has been based on the life of this obnoxious man. So already, the reader is engaged as a critic, as a detective, as a, as a sort of a very active presence in sort of culling, comparing and contrasting these versions. And then, yes, in the third part, the whole book goes into narrative overdrive. It's too big a spoiler to explain why the structure had to be precisely that, mm. but it had to mm -hmm. be. You mentioned, and I think it's another risk you took and yet pulled off very, very well, and that is that the principal character who is fictionalized in the first book, but who is revealed as to who he is in the second, third, and fourth parts. You used the word obnoxious. Uh, you called him obnoxious. <laughs> That's risky to make the principal person in the book obnoxious. Well, not to quibble, Charles. I called his <laughs> voice obnoxious. There is a very big distinction because we learn ultimately, and this is the spoiler that I'm dancing around, we learn ultimately where that voice comes from and what this man's relationship is to that voice. I think he's a complex character, this tycoon, 
I try to approach him with a great deal of respect. I hope I haven't failed in that regard. I try to give him dignity as a character. I try to give him humanity. I think we see this in his relationship with his wife, with whom, you know, ultimately throughout the course of the book, he genuinely loves her and he genuinely tries to make her love him back. And there are moments of great tenderness or as much tenderness as he's capable of. I tried to show him in that light too. I didn't want to create a straw man or like a piñata that I could just beat on. That to me is never interesting. I, I don't want to write a didactical novel where I could present this man as some kind of negative example. I always try to think of George Eliot. I try to think of George Eliot, period, because she's one of my favorite writers ever. But part of her profound ethical dimension as a writer to me, lies in the fact that she succeeds in what I just said I was trying to do, which is to show immense respect for all of her characters and never put them up there simply to sort of dress them down in any kind of moral way. I find that commendable, and it's a great aspiration of mine as a writer. It's a big thematic in this book, money and people's relationship with money. And there's a million descriptions of money in this book, uh, that it could be bent back upon itself and force-fed its own body, that it, the physical dirt on the greasy, wrinkled singles and fives. When you approached this book, how did you feel about America's relationship with money? And did the writing of this book change the way you feel at all? Right. I think I approached this book because I wanted to know more about America's relationship with money. I lived in a few different countries for extended periods of time. I can claim to know these countries really well, almost as well as a native. And in none of those countries and none of the other countries that I know of, not as deeply, money has such a crucial place in the national narrative of what that country may be as it does in the United States. This to me was very interesting in a double sense. In the first part, there is the heroic notion of capital, you know, that capital can conquer all, that capital can alter reality, that, that capital endows whoever is acquired to amass it with superhuman qualities. The notion of American dream revolves around capital. Like if you strip it down, that's what it is about. Essentially, it's about money making. The notion of freedom to a large extent is the freedom of industry. So on the one hand, you have this set of qualities around capital. And on the other hand, it's a total taboo. There is this enormous priggishness around money. We don't talk about money. Don't ask me how much my mortgage is. Don't ask me what my monthly paycheck is. Don't ask. And you mentioned Edith Wharton. And that is, if you read her memoir, A Backward Glance, in the early chapters, she talks about that when she was famously from this sort of blue-blooded New York family. And money was just not talked about. Work was not talked about. And this coexists, again, with this sort of deification of money on the other hand. So this dissonance, this stark contrast to me was very fascinating. Well, you've challenged me. How big is your mortgage or not? No, 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 no. <laughs> forget, forget that. I didn't mean to say that. One of the quotes in the book that fascinated me, you say, if money is fiction, finance capital is the fiction of a fiction. That's what all these criminals trade in, fiction. Money is at the core of it all, an illusion we've all agreed to support unanimously. First of all, 
when you say that money is a fiction, what do you mean by that? I mean that it's conventional in nature, just like language is. This is another aspect of this whole world that I found appealing. What I mean to say is that there is nothing inherent to a $5 bill that gives it that purchase power. In that strip of paper with green printing on it, it's simply that we all, as a society, as a collective, have agreed to bestow on this symbol, on this sign, on this piece of paper, that purchasing power. And so, not to quote the title of my own book, but so trust is involved in this. There is this social trust. If you take a step back, all money is play money. It's monopoly money. It's paper. But we've all voluntarily or not gathered around the board and are playing <laughs> and agree that this has this value. And it's in this regard that money is a fiction. As I read the first book, I understood that you were writing in a sort of early 20th century mode. But later on, it was more Henry James, by the way, to me than it was Edith Wharton. I agree with you. But in middle books, felt influence of Dreiser, maybe, and Sinclair Lewis. And I was interested as I read it, what must have been in your mind, in your reading habits as you were going through the book. Hernan, I'm very wary of spoilers. But the second book, The Manuscript, is written by your principal character, Andrew Bevel the super-rich ultra-capitalist who has acquired such immense wealth. This manuscript is obviously his attempt, obviously unfinished, if you've read it, to tell his story. Uh, I'm amused by notes. Expand this part. Add more fabulous success in 1926. (laughs) Talk about the safeguarding of the nature's future. It's notes to himself in this manuscript. But he obviously never finished what would have been an autobiography or a memoir. Mm -hmm. Instead, he hired Ida Partenza to write his memoir. And she is the author of the third book. I'm saying I don't want to spoil this in any way. Oh, but you just did, Charles. (laughs) (laughs) I I take it all back. She's such an unlikely hire for him. She's a poor writer from Brooklyn with an anarchist father. Why, Why would he hire her? Well, I'm sad that you spoiled that moment, but I'm also glad that you asked that question because nobody has ever asked that question before. He hired her for a number of reasons. Some of them are so embedded within the book that it would be perhaps a little tedious to like recount why. I'll give two. One of them is that precisely she is a young girl who's the daughter of an Italian immigrant who lives across the East River, right? So in other words, she has no access to his world. He has no access to other points of view of his story. She has no access to anyone who knew his deceased wife. She has absolutely no way of contrasting, because she's a poor girl from Brooklyn during the Depression, she has no way of contrasting the story about him and his wife that he is feeding her with reality. So that's why he was looking for a complete outsider. Because, of course, he could have hired a connected New York writer to do this work, probably, bought any kind of writer, but it would have come with someone who could have snooped around, and this young woman, no way. And number two, during her her job interview, she falsifies a story about herself. She's asked to write her own autobiography in one page, and it's all a lie. And that's what the tycoon sees. Okay, she is capable of creating a convincing story about herself. This is exactly what I need. 
I wanted to take a minute to ask you a question about your first book that came out in 2017, In the Distance, because it seems to me like it's a really courageous book to write because you live in one character's head as they travel from one end of the country to the other. I mean, did you ever think to yourself, what have I done? Like, I'm trapped in this character's brain for the entire book. I mean, was that ever daunting for you? Oh, my gosh. Did I ever ask myself, (laughs) what have I done? (laughs) Yes. You actually just managed to bring up the greatest challenge of the book, which was this narrow, very confined, very focused, very tight point of view. I guess it was a book that was written very slowly. It took longer than trust for this exact reason. Some days I could only write like 150 words and there were hard words to squeeze out because the book takes place, you just mentioned, is this one single person walking from coast to coast, you know, against, it's sort of an Eastern more more than a Western because he's walking East against the migratory kind of wave that's going West. And to me, the book was about, well, a number of things, but two of them pertaining to your question were this almost sort of claustrophobic point of view on the one hand, and on the other hand, this expansive landscape, this massive, massive, endless country around him. Trust has been out now for a couple of months. As people hear this, I hope many have already read it, and if they haven't, they should, because it is a wonderful book. I'm always curious about a writer and how that writer, he or she feels when their book is about to come out. You have gotten wonderful response to this. The reviews have been exemplary. But are you nervous when the book comes to the bookstores, when you begin to get feedback? And how do you feel when you find that the reception is so positive? I'm nervous always. I think it's sort of, it's my ontological condition. It's like, I don't do relaxation. It's not something that I, you know, I, it's. (laughs) So add to that, maybe that comes across in in the way I speak, although I'm trying to be like chill, but I don't know. But (laughs) add to that constant sort of nervous purr that is always going on. Yeah, the release of a book is it's it's torture in that regard and we're all at reality's mercy you know but you you kind of feel it more acutely when a book comes out but it's been a delight and and an honor and really humbling to see the book faring so well i'm very grateful well hernan diaz i as a matter of fact as i was reading the book i was always thinking about the quote from john d rockefeller who was once asked how much money is enough and he said, a little more. Oh, I didn't know that one. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. It's been a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. Thank you ever so much for talking to us. Thank you. This was a delight. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Charles. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's 
the economy stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news stupid. It is the economy stupid. It's not the economy stupid. It's national security stupid. It's the hair stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. We will do rapid fire. Do you want me to start that? Sure, go ahead. That's terrifying. <laughs> it's not. I swear, there's no gotcha questions, I promise you. All right. Oh, watch, watch me botch it. <laughs> we did it with John Irving, and trust me, John Irving's never done a rapid fire answer to anything in his life. He's never answered a <laughs> oh, yes no or no pressure. question with a yes or no John answer. Yeah. No. Oh, yes or no? No, no, no. <laughs> you wish. All right, well, let's go rapid fire with Hernan Diaz. Number one, most influential book in your life. Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. Why? It taught me English. Hmm. <laughs> what English prose was hmm. like or could be. Did it make you want to write? It did make me want to write. I never had a formal education. Like English is not my native tongue, and I never really studied it formally. At one point, I started reading English books and stories, and Portrait of a Lady was among the first like serious endeavors. And I remember reading it mm. with a dictionary by my side. And that's why it has this very, very special place. I remember sort of learning both what English could do as a tongue and just how majestic the English novel could be, both in one go. Book, e-reader, or audio? Book. No-brainer. Do you spend more time reading or writing? Reading. Also, no-brainer. Favorite child's book? Richard Scarry, I Am a Bunny. <laughs> I love that book, yeah. Do you read your reviews? I do. I shouldn't, but I do. <laughs> it's not good. I admire people who don't. Somebody said anybody who says they don't are lying. <laughs> I think you're right. And I think both are harmful. Like, praise is harmful and scathing reviews are harmful. I mean, what can you get out of that? And it's just a person reading your book, you know, but you feel it so much. And it's, yeah, but I, I fully, totally do read my reviews. So this may require a little thought. We stole this question from Stephen Colbert. In five words, describe what you want the rest of your life to be. Oh, I'm a big Colbert fan. <laughs> I watch Colbert and Seth Meyers with lunch every day with like my little salad. And whenever that question comes up, it's like, oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> um, I notice that people try to make up sentences, which clearly are pre-prepared. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give like scattered words that are not stringed into a sentence. Love, curiosity, uh, love, curiosity, uh, family, reading, writing. Love it. That's five. You've got it. I want to talk a little bit about what stays with me in this book. And it, and it goes back to our discussion of money at the beginning of the show. 
This book really was illuminating to me. It's a very human story. It's a fascinating story. The characters are fascinating. But what stayed with me, as I said before, was the way that he wrote about money, because he wrote about money in ways that I'd never thought of before. And it's a whole spectrum. There are sort of people who deal who have it. There are people who have it. And one of the characters who has it, Ernan writes, he viewed capital as an antiseptically living thing. It moves, eats, grows, breeds, falls ill, and may die, but it is clean. This became clear to him in time. The larger the operation, the further he was removed from concrete details. There was no need for him to touch a single banknote or engage with the things and people his transaction affected. All he had to do was think, speak, and perhaps write. And then you get later in the book, a perspective on money from somebody who didn't have a lot growing up. And the writing comes out because of my upbringing, I had come to consider money as something filthy, the physical dirt on the greasy wrinkled singles and fives I was accustomed to handling was also moral since the bills were quite literally stained with the sweat of the exploited masses. And I got to thinking about how different it is to be a Gordon Gecko on the beach with his big cell phone saying, move a million here, move a million there. And he never has to see anybody that he affects. He never actually has to touch a dollar bill. It's all sort of done behind the scenes versus somebody who maybe didn't grow up with it as much and has to reach into the wallet and grab the greasy bills and hand them over and, and really feel about how many, you know, really think about how many people had touched that dollar bill and how many people it had potentially exploited. It's sort of fascinating to me, that spectrum. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure it was to me. I take all your points. He writes about money from different perspectives, as well as he writes his novel from different perspectives. I just don't think that's so central. I think it's an interesting backdrop. And interestingly, if you if you read this book, you don't have to have a degree in finance. <laughs> Apparently, Kate feels it's necessary. But I don't think you need a degree in finance, nor do I need to be so philosophical about money. Let her non do that for you and enjoy the book just as it is. This is the first time Kate and I have come to <laughs> come to blows after after listening to a conversation or having a conversation with the author. Hernan Diaz, the book is Trust. For our independent bookseller this week, we have one that we know well. It is our bookstore, if you will pardon us, a personal interjection of a bookstore. This is Market Street Books in Mashpee, Massachusetts. I spend the full summer on Cape Cod. Kate is visiting here for part of it. And we always make a visit to Market Street Books, whose proprietor and owner is Cynthia O'Brien. Cynthia O'Brien, good to talk to you. Tell me, you have a shop that is smack in the middle of a tourist area, a summer tourist area. Do you find people read differently in the summer than they do in winter? Absolutely. We get a totally different clientele during the high season we get our tourists coming to visit their family here or coming to Cape Cod just for a nice visit. Off season, we're pretty much a retirement community and we have a a more elderly population and certainly the reading habits are different. When I'm out in Cape Cod, I always come by. I'm a huge fan of the store. I love the way you curate your collection, but it's a little bit different in the sense that, you know, you'll go to a Barnes and Noble or a bigger bookstore and you'll see a new arrival shelf and has all the new releases. Your new release shelf, or at least the shelves you put towards the front of the store, they almost seem like you've curated those as well. Can you talk about that? I 
stopped a long time ago buying the lists, the upcoming lists, the bestseller lists, and we buy the books book by book. Something that's a bestseller doesn't mean it's the best book. And given that I want to sell the best books, that's how it has ended up. (laughs) So what are you recommending this summer? Um, Certainly Geraldine Brooks's horse. Um, She is one of Cape Cod's own Pulitzer Prize winning author, and it's a spectacular, spectacular book. There's Lincoln Highway we're enjoying a lot, Anthony Doerr's latest, and of course, Where the Crawdads Sing has a renewed readership with the movie coming out. You're, You're a throwback, Cynthia. You don't have a computer. I do have a computer. I just don't have a web presence. (laughs) Well, then I want to ask you this, because so many of our bookstores have talked about how important that presence was during the pandemic. You seem to have come through the pandemic with room to spare. How was that period for you during that time without that presence? I have quite a loyal customer base. Even folks who are here for only a month or a week in the summer reached out to me to make sure I was going to be there when they were able to come back. Folks would order via email or by a phone, and we did a lot of uh, mailing at that time. Several folks called up and said during that time, I'd like to buy a $500 gift certificate. And they are in uh, on the West Coast, and they may never spend that, but they want their bookshop here when they get here. People have taken a bit of ownership in my shop in that they refer to it as their bookshop, and it is their bookshop as well as mine. Having met you a few times, I get the sense that you are a heavy reader it's what i do Um, (laughs) i I don't have a television i don't have cable at home and actually i don't have internet at home either i read (laughs) what's your average per week would you say i try to read a fiction a nonfiction, and a kid's book every week Hmm. so what if somebody walked into your store and said cynthia I've thought of owning a bookstore. What advice would you give me? You're not going to be wealthy being a bookseller. You're not. You must have a passion for books. It's it's not an easy field to be in. What's your favorite book of all time? Uh, Well, I'm a bit fickle. Oftentimes, my favorite book is the one in my hand. The one I have read the most often that I adore is um, Old Man in the Sea, really. It's Mm. a quick read. Um, I once put it in the hands of an eight-year-old who came back 10 years later with that book in his hands, the one I sold him, dog-eared like crazy. Um, He had had it on his nightstand for all those 10 years, and I started to open it, and he said, be careful, be careful, don't let the sand get out. He had brought it and read it on Hemingway's Beach. Oh, 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 wow. So there's the wealth, and for a young man to come back to the old book lady, just to put that book back in my hands so I could touch it is a joy. And is there a favorite author? If somebody in your store said, who's your favorite author, what would you say? Well, I love Steinbeck. Um, I love Jane Austen. Emma is one of my favorite books. I have at least 15 different copies of it because (laughs) what can you do? Um, 
It's like you do. It's hard to say. (laughs) (laughs) I love books above the author. I love books above the story. And I would suspect it is books that you do not do audible and you do not do Kindle. Well, way back when the Kindles first came out, I got one because I just had to see what it was about. And no, it's not a way for me to read books. I'm quite familiar with audio books because I'm the daughter of a blind woman. And so we did a lot of audio books with my mom. I do listen to audio books. For me as a book addict, it's a great way to absorb twice of the material in half the time. Yes. And for me, it has to be an audio book that goes straight through because I usually listen to audio books when I'm doing something else like laundry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Kate, Kate listens at double speed, which doesn't. Oh, which I seems, cannot do that. <laughs> that, that. That just seems. Uh, That's too know. much for me. Okay. <laughs> right. Cynthia O'Brien, it's a pleasure to talk to you. It was my pleasure. It's Market Street Bookshop. It is in the Mashpee Common Shopping Center in Mashpee, Massachusetts, right on Cape Cod. Chances are, if you stop by, she's going to be there, and she'll put a good book in your hands. Thank you, Cynthia. Yes, I will. Thank you so much, Charlie. Thank you, Kate. Cynthia O'Brien from Market Street Books in Mashpee. It is a well-curated and a well-gathered selection of books that she has. And she's also always available with some advice on things you might want to read. I love that story about Ernest Hemingway. I do, too. She's one of the most thoughtful booksellers that I've ever dealt with. Uh, I love bringing my kids there. She always has great suggestions for them. She knows who they are. She knows who I am. And I always enjoy thinking about the books that she selected and why she selected them. She's very good at what she does. Market Street Books in the Mashpee Common in Mashpee, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. So as always, we want to give you a rundown of the people who work on this podcast and make it what it is, whatever it is. <laughs> and and then we'll have some final words from Hernan Diaz. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohen, Iru Ekpanobi, and Elizabeth Russo. Find a beautiful sentence every day. If you can't write it, As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.